We're continuing our series on Bethany values, the foundation of what we believe. Now, values are typically in any organization just four, five, six, seven belief statements. They don't encompass everything we believe. Everything we believe, would you, you couldn't remember it. So we just focus on a few things that sort of are central to how we shape our ministry culture here. And uh, Today we're going to talk about, uh, really probably after biblical truth, my favorite value, which is cultural relevance. About 30 years ago, I took up deer hunting. No animals will die in this illustration. Because no animals die when I deer hunt. I had spent most of my childhood around lakes and swamps and woods and rivers and uh, actually did some raccoon hunting with dogs. I owned coon hounds. I was a hick from Wisconsin. And I'd go in a lake, I'd pull out snapping turtles by their tails that are trying to rip your leg off. You know, those are like dinosaurs. And I had a spear, and I'd spear carp, which is kind of a rough fish. I had a childhood on a lake. And uh, training for ministry in my 20s, it kind of cost me a decade of connecting with nature, which I really love to do, is to be outside on the water or in the woods. And it was good to be back. So at about age 30, I took up deer hunting. But that was a step up from my prior outdoor activities because deer are a lot more sophisticated uh, than snapping turtles. Deer have about a 200 times better sense of smell than humans. So like when you go down the road and somebody hit a skunk on the road and you smell it, they're like, oh, wow. That's what a deer thinks when you walk through the woods. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And deer have incredible eyesight, and they often, they're almost always in groups. The, the males often are alone. Sometimes there's what's called bachelor groups, but the males are alone. Uh, but the, the females, the does, are much like human women. They're always in groups. So hunters, in order to harvest deer and feed our children have to fit into the world of the white-tailed deer. So we buy camo to blend in. Now what's actually interesting about this is hunters buy camo not for deer but for hunters because deer are colorblind. Did you know that? So the deer can't tell that you're in this great camo pattern at all. You could be in pink and blue dots and they wouldn't be able to tell the difference. What does help is the pattern, the breakup pattern. So if you had pink and blue that actually looked like tree bark, you would be fine. But hunters also don't want to see other hunters in the woods, so they go in camo. But dealing with scent more than color is the most important issue with deer. And there are two kinds of scents. There are what's called cover scents, and these smell like something common in the woods. So you can get scent that smells like deer dander, smells like, you know, deer fur. You can get scent that smells like dirt. So you're, you, you could save some money and just rub dirt on yourself, or you can buy dirt scent and spray it on yourself. You can get scent that smells like oaks or acorns, smells from other animals, usually the south end of an animal. You can get scents that smell like that as well. Those are called cover scents. And then there are what's called attractant scents. Attractant scents are mostly sexual lures. Unfortunately for male deer, all right, PG-13 today, Male deer, mating only takes place about two weeks out of 52 weeks of the year. Two weeks. And there is a scent that a female deer puts off that helps them to locate a prospective girlfriend. And every hunter in North America can buy that scent for about $10 in a sporting goods store. And they do. 
So these poor male deer are out there with every hunter in the woods smelling like a girlfriend to bring them in. So I, you're a little shocked right now, aren't you? All right, it's going to be okay, all right? It's going to be okay. I chose a cover scent, pine scent. It wasn't, you know, pine scent is not controversial, you know, it's, it smells like pine trees. And so I entered the woods in the dark, maybe 5.30 in the morning at a friend's house who owned some woods. I grabbed a sleeping bag out of my trunk because it was very cold, and I laid between some fallen trees with the sleeping bag sort of as a blanket, and I was there with my shotgun because there's too many houses where I came from, so they don't use rifles, they use shotguns because the bullets don't go very far. I laid down, and there I was in between the fallen trees smelling like Mr. Clean. After dawn, my hunt fell into place exactly as I had hoped. Many does are coming down the hill. They kind of follow a trail. If they're in a group, they'll, they'll still sort of stay on a trail and stay around each other, and they're tra trickling down the hill along a fence line. They were enjoying a beautiful morning, and they were doing doe things. I was excited. My plan was working perfectly. My children would eat this winter. And then these does, trickling down the hill, just locked up and froze. And when they smell something unusual, they start searching the woods for danger. So all of these eyes are looking for what they smell. And after a little while, they'll start, they'll start actually sort of faking you out. They'll look down like they're eating, and then they'll jerk their heads up to try to see if anything's moving. It's really pretty funny. And then eventually, they did what's called a wheeze. I could do a wheeze. We're not going to do a wheeze this morning. And when they wheeze, that is the warning sign to every deer within a half a mile that something is in the woods and it's not safe. They're bobbing their heads, they're wheezing, they're looking up, and then they bounded up the hill, gone. I shot no deer. I was in deer heaven, the perfect spot. I was in the woods. I was by well-traveled deer trails. They go there every day. I smelled like woods. I smelled like pine scent. If anything smelled like a pine tree that day, I smelled like Christmas. And then it hit me. There were no pine trees in that woods. <laughs> the most obvious thing I had overlooked. Sure, I smelled like the outdoors, but those deer traveled those woods every day, and pine trees don't grow overnight. I thought I understood my environment, but I wasn't even close to understanding the world that they lived in and what I would have to do to adapt to get them close to me. Reaching people with the gospel is a lot like that experience in the woods. We're all excited, you know, we know Jesus, we've got the perfect message, forgiveness of sins, eternity in heaven. We know it's supposed to work. The Holy Spirit accompanies the gospel as it spreads around the world. God promised that. We think we know how to connect with people to get into their world because we're people, right? So it shouldn't be that hard. We think we understand them until they just run the other direction. And usually Christians and churches don't figure out why. 
which is why most churches in North America aren't growing, and most churches in North America don't reach, I've actually seen statistics on this, it's like almost nobody with the gospel in most churches in North America on an annual basis. How can that be? Cultural relevance is the value I want to talk about today, because this is incredibly important. And here's how we have stated this. We believe that changing our methods without compromising our message is essential as we bring timeless truths to each new generation. Changing our methods, not what we believe, but how we reach people, how we reach you, without compromising our message, doesn't change what we believe about the Bible, is essential as we try to reach each new generation. After a commitment to the Bible, this value has guided my life and my career and everything I've tried to do in ministry more than any other value. It is the reason I walked away from my roots, my religious roots. Walked away most of the way through seminary and realized I cannot serve in the kind of church I was raised in. Can't do it. Because I know if I do it, it will not be effective at reaching people. It's usually the most significant determiner of whether a church is growing or declining, this issue. It's probably the most controversial of all the values because it relates to the issue of churches being adaptable and willing to change. And change always sounds dangerous in a church. I want to read a story about this in Acts chapter 15. It's on page 105. If you want to take the Bibles that are in front of you, uh, about three-quarters of the way through, the numbering system starts over again in the New Testament, and it's on page 105. Page 105. The book of Acts, chapter 15. This is the best story in the Bible about this. It's not necessarily taught propositionally here as much as it's illustrated, and I'll look at another passage with you as well. Acts chapter 15, page 105. So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Now remember, Jerusalem is in Judea. That's where Christianity is born. So some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had uh, great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, so some Pharisees had become Christians, they stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. 
all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to us. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Now, I'll explain that in a few moments. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. We'll stop there. Three points, or actually two points. And a few applications. First, the motivation for cultural relevance is to expand the reach of the gospel. That's why we care about this value. Acts is an interesting collection of stories about people coming to faith, the expansion of the early church, and then along with the expansion, miracles that accompanied the gospel and proved that God was in it. So different people groups would come to faith in Jesus, and when they did, miracles would accompany that, and that was a way of knowing by the Spirit of God that this was really happening. God was in it. People were really coming to faith. But the stories are not disorganized or random. If you just read through the book of Acts, it's kind of like, well, what's, I mean, we see one story after another, somebody coming to faith. He could have written about a third of this, and we'd be okay. People came to faith, yay. But it's organized. Acts is organized by the geographic expansion of the gospel. In fact, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is sort of the theme uh, for the book. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, where the church started, and in Judea, the region around Jerusalem, and Samaria, the next region, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The book actually follows this outline. That's sort of the outline of the book stated in its main verse. It begins in Jerusalem, it moves to Judea, it moves to Samaria, it ends in Rome, which is considered sort of the ends of the earth from their perspective. And miracles accompany the gospel. Each time a new people group understands it and embraces it, miracles accompany it. So if you read Acts 1 through, I don't know, 28 or something like that, I think there's 28 chapters, there might be more, you'll see this geographical expansion and how God authenticates it at every turn. But the commitment of Jesus to reach the world to accomplish this was a challenge for the early church. It was a real challenge, a real problem. Why? Here's why. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. The Old Testament after Genesis 11 is entirely Jewish. That means 99% of it is Jewish. The concept of reaching the world with the knowledge of God, 
was different in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was intended to be a nation that was sort of singled out by God. He was going to bless them, and if they obeyed him, he would bless them supernaturally. They'd be able to defend their borders. You know, he would, he would prevent disease. He would, he would bless them in supernatural ways, both spiritually and physically, etc., etc. They were to be a distinct nation blessed by God, not like the church, which is people called out from all nations. That transition hasn't taken place yet. So the church isn't ready for this. So as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Rome to non-Jews, Jerusalem, Jewish, Rome, non-Jewish, Samaria, non-Jewish, what do you think the biggest question will be in the early church? Well, here's the question. How Jewish is this new church supposed to be? Because the kingdom of heaven, up until now, Genesis 12 until the end of the Old Testament, has been Jewish. The Old Testament's Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. The apostles are Jewish. It would seem that the standard for the movement should be Jewishness. Verse 1 sums it up. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The gospel's been on the move. Paul and Barnabas just come back from a missions trip. Peter had a vision from God about this issue. The gospel was spreading, but where the gospel started in Jerusalem, some of those teachers are coming to sort of the, the missions ventures and saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You think people are getting saved and, and they're not becoming Jews. We have a problem. It spread to Samaria. People are coming to faith from the outside. Peter has a weird vision or dream with some pretty unkosher elements. You can read that in the book of Acts. Uh, it's sort of like uh, pigs in a blanket. All right. You think that's a food. Peter had a vision. Pigs in a blanket. Literally, there's a sheet coming. Hey, that's a new one, right? Hey, you can use that. You don't have to quote me. Peter has a vision from God of a sheet coming down from heaven full of unclean animals. And God tells him, kill and eat. God is telling him that what used to be unkosher is no longer unkosher. It's okay, you're not under the Old Testament covenant anymore. And so Peter has this vision right before God brings a guy into his life who's not, who's not a Jewish man, who's Cornelius, who's, who's not a Christian. And, and so Peter has this weird vision, and it was a message from God. Paul and Barnabas were called to go on missions trips to people outside of Israel, and Gentiles are being converted like crazy. And when they are converted, miracles are accompanying the conversions as proof that it's the same God, it's the same gospel, and it's the same result. But it's not the same. They're not becoming Jews. And that created the most pivotal moment in early church history. Acts 15 is everything about the future of the church. If a few pastors from Jerusalem get their way, you and I aren't here today. You don't know Jesus. Christianity is a fraction of its size and influence. And salvation misses most of the world. And thankfully they got it right because God guided them to get it right. Second point, cultural relevance involves both removing barriers and searching for common ground 
with those open to faith. The issue of circumcision was about removing a barrier. Do people coming to faith, men, Gentiles, have to be circumcised, which wasn't normal in that culture, by the way. I mean, circumcision is sort of a Western issue now, and so uh, most people just assume males are circumcised. But back then, the Jews were circumcised and really nobody else, culturally. So a church council was convened. Paul and Barnabas are representing one side. A group of Christian Pharisees, there's a little bit of an oxymoron for you, Christian Pharisees are representing the other. Now, the Pharisees, actually, we don't like them because Jesus gave them a hard time and they're pretty judgmental dudes. But their Pharisees were, they were pretty committed people. If you really understood what they believed and what they tried to do, you'd have a lot of respect for them even though they were kind of self-righteous, arrogant dudes. But they're trying really hard to please God. And so they took the Jewish law, and what they said was they were building a fence around the law. So they would take one command, and they would turn it into five or ten commands. They'd take one command and figure out all the applications of that command. That would become an oral tradition, which was eventually written down, and they would, like, memorize all of it, and they would keep all of it. So instead of the ten commandments, these guys had, like, 613 that we knew about from the Old Testament and all the commentary on those. These guys were serious. They were the the most Jewish of the Jews. They were there debating Paul and Barnabas. The issue is, do Christians have to be Jews to be Christians? Circumcision is the issue. Jews are all circumcised. It's the sign of being Jewish. There's no such thing as a little Jewish boy who's not circumcised. God gave Abraham circumcision as a sign of his connection with the Jewish people, that they were cut off from the world, that they were different. So one argument made in this incredible debate, I would have loved to have been there, was this. The people of God, back to Abraham, the males have always had this little minor surgery that God commanded. Therefore, Gentile men coming to faith in Jesus need to take one for the team. That's what it means to be saved. You have to be Jewish. They need to be Jews to become Christians. The other side of this is Paul and Barnabas. The other argument was that God clearly was saving Gentiles without this sign. They were clearly coming to faith. They were understanding the gospel. Circumcision never saved anyone anyway. And the law itself, none of us have ever really kept all of the law, they said. Jesus saves us. He needed to save the Jews. He needs to save the Gentiles. It's not circumcision. It's not keeping the Old Testament covenant. None of us could do it anyway. The Old Testament covenant just showed us that we were sinners and needed a savior. That's why we need Jesus. That debate ultimately won the day. And a letter was sent to all Gentile churches. Cancel your doctor appointments. You do not need to go see a half-blind old rabbi with shaky hands saying mazel tov, which means good luck. Circumcision will not be required, but we do want to see in your lives changed lives. So they said, so guys, Gentile guys, you may not know this, but all the extra sex in your lives needs to stop. No fornication. That's basically what they said to him. No fornication. You know, stop going to idol temples, temple prostitution, etc. No fornication anymore. 
And they also said, let's not unnecessarily offend the Jews who are you in this kingdom of God with. So, no eating strangled animals. Now, this is an issue of how they killed animals, how they slaughtered them. Gentiles would often strangle animals. They wouldn't cut the neck, tip the animal upside down, drain the blood. Kosher killing of animals required all the blood drain out. So what they're saying is, we can't have you going to potlucks with your Jewish friends with animals that have been killed the wrong way, so no eating strangled animals, no blood, no meat from idol temples as well. They just put a few restrictions on the Gentiles to say, hey, clean up your lives because you do need to follow Jesus, and don't unnecessarily offend your Jewish brothers, but no, you don't have to be Jews, and you're not under the law. The gospel was now tearing down ethnic and geographical barriers. And if the church didn't adapt and remove an unnecessary barrier like circumcision, if it doesn't do that, the church is going to mostly grind to a halt. And I know I get the other side of the argument. I mean, even empowered by the Holy Spirit and even with people praying and all, yep, even empowered by the Holy Spirit and even with prayer, church would have ground to a halt. Because lost people can only overcome so much on their way to faith. And we need to break down those barriers. Acts 15 is the best example of cultural relevance in the scriptures. But the best statement about it where it's propositionally taught, where it's explicitly taught, is actually in 1 Corinthians 9. And I'm going to put that one up there for you. All right? For though I am free from all men, just wondering how that print is for you. I can see, but I have glasses on. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now, this is Paul talking about his ministry philosophy. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, so not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, Gentiles, as without law, though... uh, Mm, it is a long ways away. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you understand his heart? Paul says it's our obligation to remove barriers and look for common ground as much as we can. And he talks about how we did it. He mentions multiple spiritual backgrounds and perspectives that he regularly encountered in his ministry and how in each situation he adapted not his belief system but his approach to different kinds of people. Paul was an evangelistic genius to the Jews. Do you know what the Jews actually believed about, like, the rest of us? No, I say that as I'm 132nd Jewish, so I'm talking about the Gentile side of me now. What the Jewish rabbis would say about the rest of us is that Abraham stood at the gates of hell and that his righteousness was enough to save all of the Jews because of Abraham. But the rest of us were food for the fires of hell. That's rabbinic teaching in the era of Jesus. So the Jews felt they were saved just because they had this covenant with God in the Old Testament. And circumcision was a sign of that covenant. Do you know what Paul said to them? Here's the message he had for Jews. He's just brilliant. In Romans chapter 4, you actually see it. He's kind of preaching a message in his letter. And he's like, okay, guys, Abraham, he's, he's our man. If he can't do it, no, but anyway. 
Abraham, he's, his righteousness obviously is, is a model for all Jews, even though Abraham really was a pretty messed up dude. But nonetheless, man of faith, really messed up. But Paul said, let's, let's look at Abraham's history. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says, you all know that quote from Genesis. But then he says, hey guys, remember when he was circumcised? It was actually after that. Several chapters after. So he makes the point that Abraham wasn't really Jewish when he came to faith. Not truly Jewish by circumcision. So he makes that argument to the Jews. Clearly circumcision didn't save us. He knows that's the argument he needs to make to Jews to help them understand their lostness to, the, to those who were who are actually under the law. He's talking about not just Jews, but people who, have, who are following rabbinic teachings, like the Pharisees who take it really seriously and take every command and add an application or 20 and, and memorize them and so on. He's talking about those who, who, who follow rabbinic teaching or the teachings of the elders might be the phrase you'd see in the New Testament. They're not talking about just the scriptures. It's the scriptures plus a whole lot of legalism. To those people, he would say things like, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great Jewish teacher. I was trained by the best. I went to the best seminary. And then in Philippians 3, he talks about how he was from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, and he was like the perfect Pharisee. He said, I have all the credentials. He said, I have more, than, more credentials than any other rabbinic person you know. And to me, they were all but dung. You heard the word, D-U-N-G. Compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. That's what he said to that group of people. It's never enough. It's nothing like knowing Jesus. To the Gentiles, get this. Okay, I'm even uncomfortable with this sermon. It takes a lot to make me uncomfortable with the Apostle Paul because I like to think we're a lot alike, mostly in our bad ways. <laughs> Acts 17. He preaches a sermon in a pagan temple area, the Areopagus in Athens, you know, one temple after another, lining the streets. And then there's this altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, ha, that's the God I know. That's the one I want to tell you about, the unknown God. They had one there just in case they hadn't worshipped all of the gods and they were missing one. They put one there just to be careful, you know? So he says, I know that God. Let me tell you about that God. And he preaches a sermon to them. And I got to tell you, this is amazing. He never quotes the Old Testament. Why? Because they're not Jewish. He never uses scripture He never uses the name of Jesus, so I'm assuming he's just trying to you know, get some interest and if he really drew the net, he would have to explain Jesus, but he doesn't in the sermon we have recorded. He referenced the altar, a pagan altar, to the unknown God, and he quoted a poet. Now, there are actually Christians in seminary who debate, well, that's why he wasn't very effective in Athens. He didn't do it right. I'm not going to start correcting the Apostle Paul right now. I'm glad some of my seminary friends feel comfortable with it, but I'm not going to question Paul. To the weaker brother, this is the person who is a believer, but their, soul, their faith isn't strong enough, so you know, you, they can't go to the market and eat meat offered to idols. Paul said, I can go in the, you know, a steak is a steak. If it was sacrificed in a pagan altar, I don't care. If I get a good deal on it at Costco, I'm going to buy it and eat it. But a lot of people who came out of paganism weren't comfortable with that because they had been in pagan temples and been part of those sacrifices. So Paul said, for the sake of those brothers, you know, don't eat that meat. So Paul said to the weaker brother, I abstain from things so that I have a, an inroad into their lives. The early church was adaptable and bold. And Paul wasn't always popular for this. He had all kinds of enemies. 
but he wouldn't budge on this principle. He said, I am a slave to every lost person. His words, not mine. I am a slave to every lost person so I can reach as many as possible. A couple applications as we close here. Relevance demands an adaptable and changing church ministry and culture. So I have my review tomorrow night with a couple of the elders, which is always a nerve-wracking time of my life. So I'm on a te- it's not, but I'm on a text with Aaron Mackey, who's the chairman of the board, and Jay Summers, and other the elders that are doing my review. So I intercept this text the other night. They wanted to do it on Monday, and it's my day off, so I said, as long as you don't fire me on my day off, you know, that's fine. So Aaron says, I should be done at the hospital by 5.45-ish and could meet at 6 near Bethany somewhere. Jay, should we pick somewhere loud to mask the screams? That's how people get fired in restaurants. Remember the movie Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise? That's exactly what happens. So anyway, so of course my paranoia is going off, you know, and I intercept this text and I immediately put my resume online, and I got a call the same day from Pennsylvania. That is Amish country in the U.S. Pennsylvania is the center of Amish country. And they have an opening for the head of Amish evangelism and outreach. I thought, I've got a good evangelistic track record. So I got on the phone with Eli and Caleb. Eli said some nice things about my resume. He introduced himself. I said, where are you calling from? It was the general store, because he never has a cell phone, of course. So I have a few questions. First question is, obviously, Eli, have you ever seen The Witness with Harrison Ford? You guys know what that movie, all right, all right. And then I realized, dumb question, movie, dumb question. So then I I, I said, Eli, Caleb, can you both hear me? Because I know they're both right next to it, anyway. I said, what are we driving these days? What are we driving? Do we still do the horse and buggy with the, you know, the slow-moving vehicle thing? Or if I try to reach people and help them convert to Amishness, can they keep their cars? And Eli assured me, no, no, they're, they're going horse and buggy if they convert to uh, Christianity and are Amish. So okay, all right, well, let's, uh, let's move on. What are we wearing these days? What are we wearing these days? Uh, because what I've seen in women's fashion is not as broad as I'm used to in the Amish community. They've got those sort of apron things over the dresses. I don't mind black shoes, but every day, same, same look. I'm not sure. You know, the women I know who might come to faith and become Amish probably want a little more variety. They're used to makeup. They're used to nail polish. They get mani-pedis. I said, where are we at with that? And Caleb piped in and said, no, no we're, not, we're, not, we're not really into that. We just like to, um, yeah, no, we don't let our women do that. I'm like, okay, that, that's going to be a problem. And I said, what about TV and cell phones? What about TV and cell phones? And no. And I said, well, I'll think about it. Let me see how tomorrow night goes with Aaron and Jay first. Now, I want you to know that I have a lot of respect for Amish culture. I do. I have a lot of respect for separatist cultures and what they believe in many ways. But I left a separatist culture on purpose. Because that job, Amish outreach, is a bad 
job. I respect the Amish people, but that's a bad job. I will fail. Because that culture will not allow me to find common ground with the people I'm trying to reach if I'm in charge of Amish outreach. Now, it's not theological common ground that's going to be as much of the problem. It's practical, ministry practice kind of common ground. There are immense barriers that somebody would have to go to to change, to become Amish in order to find Jesus. And one of the problems, now we're talking about all churches, not the Amish. One of the problems is churches often lock in a culture that is effective for a time and think, this works, therefore we will never change it because it works. And it did three generations ago. It's effective for a time and then it is not, but it has now been memorialized. We've always done it this way. And I got to tell you, this is about all churches that exist. Church plants, if you know the statistics on church plants, most of them fail. It's a hard thing to plant a church. But do you know why people keep planting churches? Not because they're crazy and they don't want to make any money. People plant churches because they know how hard it is to change existing churches, and they know that church plants are more evangelistically effective. Do you know why they're more evangelistically effective? Because they don't have any cultural baggage. They can start a church in a high school with exactly the music, exactly the dress, exactly the sermon, exactly the culture, exactly the feel that they want to, and they don't have to fight history. That's why they're more effective. And everything is against them. They don't have a building. They don't have resources. They, everything is against them. And they're more effective evangelistically because they don't have to fight existing culture. Relevance demands an adaptable changing church ministry and culture. Relevance without biblical boundaries is nothing more than theological drift. Relevance without biblical boundaries is nothing more than theological drift. Change sounds kind of dangerous when you're in the church, doesn't it? It's like, woo, that's scandalous. Asking us to do stuff we've never done before. What about the faith once delivered for the saints? That's in the Bible. I agree, that's a great verse. What about stand fast? I'm not talking about changing little things here and there. He's talking about stand fast in your faith. I agree with that. In doctrine, absolutely. In other areas, absolutely not. The apostles didn't do that. They were the most adaptable generation in the history of the church. They got rid of Jewishness to reach the world. That wasn't easy. We adapt, we change in non-essentials to help to create common ground. It's why we play the music we play. It's why we have the ministry options we have. It's why we added family night, which has been a smashing success. It's why we then moved youth to family night. It's why... It's why we just renovated a lower level downstairs area that I really wouldn't want to send my little kids into, into a great, open, vibrant youth space. And by the way, our youth group is exploding. And you would say, well, that's just not because of the space. We got a new youth guy. He's good. Yeah, he's good. I like him. I like him. I li he's not bad. You know, he's not bad. But he likes the youth space too. He likes to use space too. It matters. 
compared to having youth group in the lobby on Wednesday nights or out in the trailer. It matters. All of these things matter. You say, well, that shouldn't matter to people. You know what? It might not matter to you because you've been a Christian for 40 or 50 years and you know Jesus and you don't care about those things. It matters to the person coming in for the first time who doesn't know Jesus, who does care about those things that you may consider shallow. It all matters. This issue is more important than anything other than staying true to God's word. You can pray your hearts out. You can fast until the stars fall. And if you're not relevant, you will have limited impact. And I know what I just said, and I know how unspiritual that just sounded. And I know I will be judged by you for saying it. This matters. Third, well, and by the way, oh, let me finish here. The Bible gives us the boundaries. The Bible gives us the boundaries. Human sexuality. Man, if I want to fit in with the culture and tell people what they want to hear, boy, that's the way you want to adopt. That's where you want to be. And churches are, are flocking to fit in with the world's views of human sexuality, even as the world's views of human sexuality are falling apart. By the way, did you know that the place in England that did most of the surgeries that are changing people's sex is now closed and is being sued by all the people who were serviced there. Some of this stuff is kind of dawning on people that maybe were a little bit out there. That maybe the world is more woke than it should be. The Bible gives us a standard for human sexuality. I would never compromise on that. I'm the most conservative person you know. But I'll change every ministry style I need to to reach those people. Worship services, online or not. It was a big debate in the church. Should we worship online? Is that really worship? And COVID kind of told us, we're all telling you, yeah, just look in online. Don't come to church. I mean, okay. Church is not online at home. Thank you for joining online, by the way. <laughs> we love you. But some of you can't get to church. But for those who can, people check us out online. But we want you here eventually because worship is a corporate experience where we, we gather together to see that we're not the only crazy people on the planet. There's others like us who love and follow the true God. Truth, we're never going to debate the nature of truth here. I'll talk about it, but truth is absolute. We're not going to be pluralistic here. We're going to be the most old-fashioned church in North America on what matters. But after that, but after that, I'll get in a clown suit to reach people for Jesus if I need to. No, I didn't mean that. Because I got some real frowns from a couple older women. <clears throat> Do you understand the point? People are lost and they need Jesus. And I really don't care how we used to do things here or in any other church. And you shouldn't either. It's people that matter, not our sacred traditions. It's just people. And they can't afford to have us say, well, that's how we've always done it. Scariest words in the church. A lost world demands it. I'm slave to all so that I might win some. The church always has the burden on itself to bridge the gap to a lost world. We cannot afford to be as dumb as Paul the deer hunter, smelling like Mr. Clean in an oak woods. 
thinking he's adapting to the culture. And the deer are wheezing and running the other direction. We've got to find a way to bring two worlds together, a lost world and the church with a saving message. Amen.